Welcome back to part two of Recession Stars with guest host Victoria Torres, a funder with the Samueli Foundation and host of the Nonprofit Life podcast. When we left off, we were discussing the importance of strategic partners. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Um, let's move on to innovative pilots that scale with a focus on developing higher quality. Explain that. So every single person that I talk to um, because they had some management experience, they they understood the idea that, hey, if I'm going to start something new or I'm going to try to tweak my program to make it better, or maybe I'm just starting a program from scratch, I need to get the highest quality as possible. So they'll they'll try things on a small scale, see that they work, and then scale them up. Um, so, um, you know, one of the great examples of all of this is... Uh, uh, Debbie, Debbie Miller, who started Cure Duchesne, this is an organization that is curing uh, Duchesne disease, which is a very, very rare disease that only affects one male boy out of 3,500. Um, and it's a form of muscular dystrophy that kind of over, uh, it hits them in their uh, preteen years. And, and as they become teenagers, they become completely uh, disabled. And um, she, she had this happen to her son. She was a high-end high executive, and she decided she was going to quit her job and start this organization. And it came about because first she started a network of all the parents. She's like, you know, there's not enough information about this disease because it's rare. So I'm going to get all the parents together I can online and get more information. So she started the network first. And then she said, hey, let's raise some money for research because there wasn't enough research out there because it's a rare disease. So she got a whole bunch of parents all over the country to create small um, fundraisers for her. So she wasn't out there doing the fundraisers. She got her network to do them. So she had no control over them. She let them do their own thing. And then the money that came in from that, she was smart enough to start um, uh, giving it out as not as grants, but as venture capital. So when she invested in a research project, she got a percentage in that research project. And at one, after a few years of that, one of her research projects actually hit gold and was bought out by a major pharmaceutical company for a lot of money. And she got a big percentage of that because she was an early investor. And that went back into more research. And now she's a venture capitalist, uh, venture philanthropist, really, um, investing in research. So, I mean, it was just brilliant what she did. So they went from, from a half a million dollar organization that they got from all these parents groups to a $5.3 million organization today. Um, and it was all through social enterprise, through venture capital. And so she was really smart to kind of figure out what worked on a small scale and then scale it up. Um, all of the people I talked to were like that. Um, Solidarity that I mentioned earlier, they they wanted to their big thing was they wanted to help the youth in their neighborhood have some kind of jobs so all they wanted to do was help create jobs for these youth 
they didn't know what that meant. They, they didn't know if it meant, you know, like getting them training and going out and, uh, and how to interview or what. But somebody in the neighborhood from their network that they formed talking about their mission, somebody in their neighborhood say, hey, look, I run a printing company. I'll give you free printing supplies for uh, screen printing. And you can start a T-shirt business. And I'll even give you space in the back of my shop to do it. So they did that. It, it was called Solid T. Did very, very well. It ended up moving to a park, continued to grow, and they ended up selling the company to the kids that they trained to run it. And now the kids that were in their teens starting it are in their 20s now, and now they own the company. And then wow. they did the same thing with the coffee company. So like really, story. yeah, I mean, just innovative things that people are doing. Um you know, I know in my own story, we did some very innovative things at the Muckenthaler starting the first STEAM programs in Orange County. When everybody was talking about STEM, there was this new conversation about uh, incorporating STEM education with the arts because everything is online. You need to be able to design websites. You need to be able to know some design elements. So we started doing art and design programs with STEM, creating the first STEAM programs in Orange County. And that's how we scaled up. Um, that was a big part of our earned income, which is a big part of, of our story. So you see this over and over and over again. And one thing I, I noticed too um, is th these organizations that you mentioned, it kind of goes in line with number seven, that they saw an opportunity in a crisis and they leveraged that moment, which is very, very typical of for-profit you know, business mindset. There's a lot of ideas happening right now that are getting seed funded, invested that we won't know about for six months, years down the road, because there's a lots of needs right now happening. There's a lot of people yeah. taking advantage of, you know, the technology needs, app needs, online learning needs, and who knows what's going to come out of this. And so I think it's very important for nonprofits to also think about that too. What, what are the new opportunities? Um, how can we be a part of those gaps, but not mission drift? right? Because we all still have a place. Um, but I think what's important based on what I read in your stories is not having the mindset of, well, I'll do it, but only if I can find funding for it. Uh, it sounds like these organizations really looked at this as investments, whether it was an investment of time uh, for their free time or investment of, of staff without or vo using volunteers that they really, re they realized I, I got to do this with no money, prove a concept, and then the money will come, which is very much in line with what I'm a book I'm reading right now called Social Startup Success, um, written by uh, Kathleen Kelly Janice. And um, but she speaks very much to this is that you got to pilot something and you got to show proof of concept. And in order to do that, sometimes you got to do it with your own resources and not expect startup funds. Well, it, it, we can go back to the one that we skipped and talk about this one. I, but what you said is absolutely true. I mean, you, proof of concept is very important because people that are investing in something, they want proof that it works. So if you do something small and you can show that it works, it's going to be much easier to get people to invest in how you scale it. And when, when you're talking about opportunity and crisis, I mean, we see that now with COVID. Um, so I, I left the Muckenthaler and the person who came in to replace me, uh, Farrell uh, Hirsch is the CEO there now. He's a really great CEO. And during COVID, 
he did something amazing. He he figured out that there was an actually it was one of his staff, uh, one of the art teachers there, Marcia Judd, who works at Cal State Fullerton as well. She figured out that, hey, we have all these old art supplies that are just sitting here in storage. They've been here pre-COVID, so there's nothing tainted about them. What if we were to just put together art kits and give them out to people in like a drive-through through the parking lot so parents could have something for kids to do when they get home? Um, and since we can't teach the classes, we can write up a lesson and give them a lesson plan with the materials and it'll keep them busy for about three or four hours doing something creative and artistic. So they did that with a small, they had 50 art kits the first week and they were gone in like an hour and they had 500 people wanting them. So the next week they made 500 and before the week was over, they had $40,000 in funding and people, I think you were one of them. Um, funders wanting them to move it to Anaheim for seniors and doing the same thing with seniors. And um, they ended up creating a whole new stream of income that would get them through COVID with these art kits. And that was brilliant. And you see people doing this a lot with, um, with COVID now is figuring out where's the opportunity in this crisis and how can we leverage that? You see it with online fundraisers now too. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up that example because um, yeah, uh, uh, you know Stephanie, the, the program director over there. She she called I me. I hired her, by the way. I hired her. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, we had just granted money out to them to do art classes uh, in Anaheim at the West Anaheim Youth Center, and then COVID hit, and seen for seniors specifically. And then she came and and she came to me with this idea of, you know, we have these art kits that are going you know, really successfully, could we just streamline that to um, the seniors in Anaheim? And I said, absolutely, whatever makes sense. And, and you know, luckily as a private funder, you know, we, we can shift very easily. It's private funding and it, there's not a lot of restrictions unless we give them the restrictions. So um, when you have those funders that you feel confident and comfortable or you have it in number six, a deep relationship with to say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, this is how we're pivoting is very successful. Can we do this here? Then do it. And, uh, you know, and, you know, be ready for them to say no versus you just assuming that it's going to be no. And yes, so they've been very successful in two locations, West Anaheim and at the Sunkiss Library. Um, and they partnered, they partnered with the library because they were worried about how are we going to give the kits out with the social distancing and the library um, was already doing a uh, drive-by book checkout. The senior would check out a book through a system or call in, and then they'd drive by and pick it up, and they just added an art kit along with it. So it was yeah. perfect. Yeah, I, I'd be very surprised if Stephanie isn't a great CEO someday soon, because she's yeah. really a smart woman. Um, so yeah, so let's go back to the one we skipped. So deepening relationships by telling their stories well with partners, clients, and the community they serve. So uh, again, if um, at the Gianneschi Center, every time I do a marketing workshop, I get a handful of people that sign up. But if I did a fundraising workshop, I, everybody and their mother would sign up, right? Um, there's there's something that's not very sexy in our um, in our world about marketing. But the people who were successful were really good at marketing themselves. And part of that comes from the fact that they're always mission centric. They're always telling everybody about what they do. They have great networks, but they're also creating great networks online. They're deepening the relationships they have by just making sure that 
when they have a good story that comes out of their program, they share that story with their with their partners, and that includes their investors and their board. And you know, their their boards are doing good at being evangelists in the community for that for that mission. Um, so you know, that's you know, marketing is really that's what it's about because. You know, I teach marketing, Cal State Fullerton, and you have the three the three circles that kind of intersect. The the circle of of owned media, which is the media that you own, like your website, your your the stories that you put out through your blogs and your feeds and your podcasts and whatnot. And then you have uh, paid media, the the things that you pay for, which in our case is usually Google grants because you can get them free through TechSoup. And if you're not doing that, you should be doing that. And then you have earned media, which is that that circle of things that you don't control at all, that other people like a story that you told and they share it and that goes viral. So it could be in a newspaper article. It could be a viral thing online, a post, a video, a photo that goes viral on Instagram. Those are earned media and you don't control those. But the more things you put out, the more great stories you put out, the more earned media you will get. Yes, and the more you share it, other people will share it. I mean, there's something to be said about social media and algorithms and um, the value of that. Uh, so say a little bit more because, so do you know if these organizations had strong, what type of strong marketing presence did they have? Was it was hmm. it their website? Almost, their- almost all of them didn't have a marketing or fundraising staff person. Uh, wow. All the people that I interviewed, remember, they started small and grew large. So all the people I interviewed did not have a fundraiser or a marketing person on staff. And none of them had a mindset of fundraising. The people I interviewed, they weren't thinking, oh, I got to learn grant writing. I've got to learn, you know, this. Mm -hmm. I have to go do that. They were thinking, how can I get other people to share my love for this mission or my you know, concern for this mission. How can I get that word out there? And that's all they were thinking. So they were all about getting more people to care about their mission and be part of it with them. And, and then that led them to everything they needed. So if they, if, if you're, if you're that kind of person and you're out at a rotary club talking about it, or you're in an elevator talking about it, and the person you're talking to just mentions that they're a, um, grant writer or they're a excuse me a web designer or whatever it is you're gonna say oh i could sure use your help with my you know with my mission and you're gonna recruit them to your cause because that's the kind of person you are and so they were never looking for money they were always recruiting people to their cause and and then they were always because they were innovative people thinking about how they could get earned income streams within what it is that they were doing Got it. No, and I think that's um, very important for uh, a very important lesson for our board, our boards of directors, because sometimes uh, I think we inherit boards that think, oh, well, you just need to write more grants, or oh, you just need to, um, I don't know, just go go knock on more doors, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what needs to happen. But um, really, it's about sharing the mission and sharing it. Um, in the right, in a captivating way to where people want to learn more, knew more, know more, and then kind of link us to those, uh, to, to those opportunities that could lead to funding. So 
I want to share what was what was not present, what was missing from all the people I interviewed. None of them had a focus on fundraising. None of them had a focus on anything outside of their community. So um, whatever their community is, if it's the, the LGBTQA community, that's what they were focused on. If it's South Fullerton, south of the railroad tracks, that's what they're focused on. And they're looking for as many partners that will care about that community as possible. Um, so, you know, they were focused on that. And, and then the third thing that was not present is none of them produced their own gala events. All of them either had no events at all, or in the case of Cure to Shane, they had events that other people produced for them, like DIY events, do-it-yourself events that they said, hey, if you want to help us, you know, you can produce an event. And they, they did it for them. Okay. Well, th so then this question actually is a good segue to that. Um, so what then would you, so for them, the cost, uh, cost per dollar, right? We all, we talk about what's the cost per dollar to do something. So the cost per dollar for them uh, for earned income was probably greater, right? Than the major gift or uh, gala event because they didn't even have one. But any, from your experience or expertise as a ED who focused on earned income, um, what what's the cost per dollar for having an earned income program versus the cost per dollar that might come from focusing on major gifts, focusing on that large event um, that still brings in money? So I think um, for organizations that are small, meaning under a million dollars, I don't think it is wise to have a professional fundraiser on staff. I don't think um, if, if I had the money to hire a staff person, I would hire a marketing person before I would hire a fundraising person. And that's only if I was not a good marketer myself. But most of these uh, directors, either they were very good at, at talking about their mission themselves, or right. they were very good at um, putting a fire under other people to talk about it if they were more introverted. And some of them were like uh, the lady who runs Cure to Shane, Debbie Miller. She struck me as someone who's somewhat introverted and very kind of a wonky bookish person that doesn't necessarily want to go to parties all the time. And, you know, but she was very good at motivating other people to do that. Um, so, yeah. so I think uh, to, to kind of go back to circle back to the question, like what I would do if, if I wanted grant money, um, which is not a bad thing. I wouldn't hire a, a grant writer necessarily. I would hire, I would have my program person who might be me. I might be the program person. And, you know, a lot of these are one person or organizations, but I, I, whoever's doing the program, they should write the grant because a grant is nothing more than a program design. So if you get the person who's designing the program to write the grant and then have somebody, whether it's a student or a senior retired person, volunteer, friend, who is good at um, journalistic writing, somebody who knows how to write a good newspaper article, have them wordsmith the grant that you wrote, that's gonna be a pretty good grant because really a grant is nothing more than a program design that's been written like a newspaper article. Um, so like, I think if you're really good at, at using your resources, and again, not money, resources of people uh, around you, volunteers, board members, um, investors, partners, strategic partners in the community, 
you can get anything done without ever thinking about money. And, uh, you know, like even the question is very kind of money centric. So one thing I can say is I've written, I wrote about this in my article is that economists would tell you that there's a diminishing return on investment. If you're, if you're spending all of your fundraising time worried about that 21% of income that is uh, from traditional fundraising and not the 65% of income that is earned income, then you're, you're, you're probably losing out on a lot of income because you should be spending more time getting that earned income in if it's the bigger yeah. part of what you do. Yeah, and so I have a question about that, but before I wanna comment on your you know proposed organizational chart for those organizations less than a million, um, I, I can tell you from a funder's perspective too, one thing that is uh, that can get frustrating um, with the model where there's a fundraiser present, you know, there's statistics out there that say the fundraising role has a 18 month to two year, you know, uh, turnover. And so, as a funder, uh, more and more we we're wanting to meet the ED or know the ED more, more so because that person who asked for money is going to be gone um, based on data, right? Based on data, 18, they stick around for 18 to, to 18 months, two years, and then they move on. So then I built a relationship with that development person and then they leave. And then what, then who do I talk to? The new person who didn't really know what, you know, or, or is learning about what we gave the money for. So more and more, I will tell you funders, that's why they want to meet your ED because of for that reason. Um, so either hire someone for the long term, or if you're that ED in that organization that's less than a million, you be better be prepared to be that relationship builder. Um, and then as you were saying, find someone to to take care of the admin, right? And so so maybe it's not uh, it's not a bad idea to hire a grant writer, but they're not the relationship builder grant writer. Maybe they're just a consultant that helps with the prospecting and then the handoff, right? Like I built the relationship at Albertsons. They want us to write this. Here you go. Um, and then keep that stewardship going, uh, but have someone on the side to do that, that administrative work. Um, so I, I agree with you. Um, we all need to be mindful of the org structure and how we allocate resources when it comes to people. Yeah. And, you know, I don't I don't mean to come down on fundraisers. I've been a professional fundraiser. I went to AFP. I got my CFRE. You know, I, I, I know fundraising. But the thing about it is if you're fundraising for a small organization, you're going to be a better fundraiser by teaching them how to get earned income, teaching them how to work as a team of fundraisers um, with all the people that they have available to go out and evangelize that mission. And, and everyone has their superpower. Some people are going to be great writers, might help with the grants. Other people are going to be great at networking. Other people are going to be, you know, introverted people who are going to be great at, at working in the back office and analyzing things. And, but, you know, everybody's going to have their, their, their strengths. And it's mobilizing the entire organization to become um, mission-centric uh, evangelists for that cause that's going to bring in resources. Right. Not money, but resources. Yeah. So, can you say because um, uh, we have we have a comment, and I think it's a fair uh, a fair comment that, um, and I don't know who based on the name. It says R. Kokel. So, if if I'm asking it wrong, feel free to unmute yourself and ask. But 
Um, they're asking, I would expect your cost per dollar raise would be more expensive for earned income than just asking for a significant donation from that major donor. Um, so maybe you could, can you share or do you know what were the types of earned income those orgs had? Was it fee-for-service, goods, a social enterprise that might help answer that? Well, let me push back on that a little bit because I sit on the panel right now for the Orange County Community Foundation's grant for social innovation. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been one of the people on the panel that, and I'm not the only one, that's pushed to give out smaller amounts of money to more organizations for pilot programs. Because if you're, if you're a funder, and, and this would be my advice based on my research to funders, give out more smaller grants for pilots for organizations between 200,000 and a million because, or maybe even a little over a million, but you know, organizations in that mid range size, because those are organizations that if they have good leadership and maybe that should be part of the funding too, is to get that leadership training. But if they have good leadership and they have a good idea for a pilot program and you give them the seed money for that, they should be able to scale that up into earned income. So if the question stated that it would cost more money to invest in earned income strategies, I don't think that's the case. I think you invest in small pilots that can grow and then you're not, it's not costing you more money as a funder to invest. Very true, yeah. I, I, see, I see him on the screen, is that, is that answer your question? <laughs> okay, sort of. You feel free to unmute yourself and yeah. and and say more if you want to. If you want a clarification, well, I always try to. I, I worked as a consultant for many years and raised a lot of money for nonprofits over the years from Wisconsin all the way down to San Diego. And um, my clients who brought in a lot of money through in, earned income have brought in a lot of money, but it always costs them a lot per dollar too. Even the large organizations like the American Cancer Society and their discovery shops, they still had to pay a lot for the privilege of getting all the earned income and distributing it and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. As if you just go out and, and talk to somebody for half a million dollars who's already been in your network for 15 years, it, your cost per dollar raises a lot less. That, that isn't an option for new organizations who are starting because they don't have that donor state. So they, they need to build up whatever they can and incur the higher costs. Is that I, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't find that. So, and I haven't heard that and it hasn't been my experience. So when I was at the Muckenthaler, we, we got about, I would say about 80% of our income was earned income. And when we did get a grant, it was for a new a pilot program that we were going to make into earned income. So in our case, we, we started out these STEAM programs. We started institutional prison art programs. And, um, and all of them ended up in contracts with school districts, with prisons. Um, but they ended up in government contracts that brought in a lot of earned income. And it wasn't my experience, and it wasn't the experience of anyone I interviewed, that it was ex expensive for them to bring in earned income. So uh, that's that's new to me, honestly. Thank you. I can see in your situation where it probably wouldn't apply. Yeah, maybe, I mean, I could see if, if you're talking about large organizations over a million dollars, that may be the case, but yeah. not for small organizations that are doing things the right way with pilot programs. I don't think that would be the case. 
And so, Zoo, maybe you could explain more of, you know, define earned income. So you said contracts, sure. fee-for-service, ticket sales, social... And social enterprise, yeah. So so um, so in our case at the Muckenthaler, we had... Our, our, we had a $1.6 million budget, 600,000 of that when I left was from contracts for schools for STEAM programs and with prisons for prison art programs. So that was 600,000 of our budget. Uh, four, four to 500,000 was our social enterprise wedding business that we had on the property. So we had a beautiful property and a historic building. So we brought in a caterer as a partner. They did all the work and we just got a percentage of the catering plus the um, plus the wedding fees, right? The the site fees, and so we didn't have to do any of the work. We just cleared space on the calendar for the weddings to happen. They did all the work, and we got a cut. And that was uh, uh, about four hundred, a little more than four hundred thousand of our budget. And um, and then we had ticket sales, which was probably you know uh, ten to fifteen percent of our budget, and the rest were, were grants. So I mean. Uh, an individual donation. So the vast majority, oh, and we had memberships too. When I started at the Muck, we had 20 members. And when I left, we had 800. Um, and a membership when I started was $15. And when I left, it was $150 to, to $600 per membership. And so we brought in about $80,000 a year in membership fees when I left. Uh, I think that's, you, you, kind of um, reminded me of something. So some of you, especially small organizations um, that have a really specific niche, I'm working with an org right now that um, because because of all the social media and virtual programming going on, so nonprofits putting their programming online uh, through Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever, Instagram. Um, I know this one organization is getting calls from other entities or smaller orgs similar to theirs outside of the county, the state, saying, we want what you have. We want to do what you do. How can we just like have your or like a chapter organization, right, in Arizona or New Mexico? Mm -hmm. And so um, so sh she's contemplating on two choices. Do I just create a, a chapter type, you know, organization where I'm headquarters and then um, and then they pay a fee, right, to be associated? Or is it a more of a membership where all these organizations just, really they're just paying for her brain and they're paying for her uh, her, her standard operating procedures and her um, knowledge of how to do this because these are uh, women, you know, in other parts of the country that just say, we just want it to be really easy. We're working moms as well, um, but we just, we just want your tools. We want your resources. And they call her anyway for guidance and support. So I said, just turn it into a membership model. Just charge them an annual fee and host quarterly meetings or strategic planning sessions. And they get all of your stuff. And it's a new revenue line, right? It's a new yeah. way of, of earning income, right, for the organization. Yeah, I think I think if I were to advise them, I would have advised them to do a fiscal sponsorship agreement where they got like they, they were the fiscal sponsor of them and basically birthing them as organizations. And then eventually they would move out on their own, but they would get 10 percent of whatever they brought in as the because they have to do all the paperwork for them if they get a grant or if they get, you know, so they would they would maintain 10 percent as the fiscal sponsor, which 
if you're writing a grant, you can write off 10% of the administrative anyway, right? So we talked about that too. And uh, it was, she's like, it's too much work. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Right. It was too much work, but at least you have options. And so I think what's important about this conversation, you know, as we're coming to a close here is, you know, we're in a time of opportunity, right? That was one of the, the items, the seven items. Yeah. You are in a moment of opportunity and there's a window. And I think you have to make a decision as leaders on this call, you know, what is your window and how are you going to use it? Are you going to use it to just sit back and wait till the storm passes and, and kind of hope that, okay, well, we're going to get back to normal, which there's no more normal people. Like there's, hmm. this, there's no back to normal. There is a new normal happening. Um, and so what is going to be your organization's place? Well, you know, and I I think there's two opportunities right now. There's an opportunity from COVID that's being presented because people are much more comfortable online than they've ever been. So there's all this opportunity to create more online content for every organization. But there's another opportunity with Black Lives Matter and what's going on in the country racially um, in that people are paying attention to race in a way they never have before. Um, And they're paying attention to the history of of racism in a way they never had before. And I think that affects all organizations and there's an opportunity with all organizations um, to be part of that conversation and to maybe drum up interest in whatever your slant is on that from whatever your mission is, you know, but I would say that it affects probably almost every mission there is, right? So I think there's two opportunities out there. Yes, yes. Um, two more questions about the 29 uh, all-stars that you focused on. Uh, were any of them uh, mission related to eliminating poverty? Because um, Nick is asking, you know, trying to imagine how to create earned income when the services are for the poor. Uh, mm-hmm. And then another one was about if any of the 29 were internationally focused. So there were, there were, I think, three or four social service organizations of the 29, and all of them had a thrift store. And we're able to get, so there was one Habitat for Humanity. They had a restore. There was one um, organization that gets furniture for people that move into a a place and they don't have any furniture. And they had a thrift store. And then there was Grandma's House of Hope, which I believe they run a thrift store too. I could be wrong about that. But um, I think uh, all of the ones that I looked at their 990s had some kind of a thrift store that was a social enterprise for the organization. Okay. And any with the international focus, they just happened to be headquartered here, but they were serving internationally. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the ones, the, the 207 organizations, there were a lot of international, but all of them dropped off after the recession. So they got a big influx of money during the recession because they were doing something overseas that had a need. And then after the recession, that money dried up. So that was what I noticed. Um, Some of them were faith-based organizations working in other countries. Some of them were um, uh, political organizations working in other countries for a specific ethnic group. But all of them dried up um, after the recession. So that's something to be aware of, I think, for international organizations is how do you keep this going once the crisis is over? Very good point. Thank you. Oh, we have a we have a thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope that you've gotten a lot out of this, and I hope that it was as enlightening for you as it was for me. Because even though I suspected a lot of this going in, 
there, there were so many mind-blowing things that I learned that for me, who is kind of very wonky on these things because I make a career at helping organizations, yes, I, I was just blown away. And then I was kind of blown away at how blown away I was. Like, <laughs> like why, why wouldn't I think this is how organizations should run, you know? So uh, I think we're all a little brainwashed in our mindset. And I yes. think fundraisers and funders and organizations all need to rethink how we do our work. Well, I will tell you, I appreciate it, um, you know, because I, I did data, um, you know, back at 1OC and also I love, you know, Red Causes Count. So I, I know the data and uh, this is actually just more um, helpful in my validation when I speak with nonprofits that that think it is about the event, right? It's about yeah. the big event or it's about the ga- the gala. And um, it's not always about that. It's uh, if you look at the pie chart. It's um, it's this. And so we always need that reminder. So thank you, Zoot, for your time and effort and um, and and your resource into the project, um, because uh, hopefully now those those funders will come calling <laughs> or I think you said you might have a book deal for it. So congratulations on that. And we look forward to the um, the white paper that's supposed to come out. Yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting to see who's going to publish it first. Um because there's a there there's two places that uh, I was asked to submit to by Jan actually by Jan Masaoka and so we'll see who ac- ends up publishing it but as soon as I get word that it's going to be published I'll send it to you all and you'll be the first to have it wonderful I want to thank Victoria Torres for being my guest host on this episode of 501c3 BS. You can find her on her own podcast called The Nonprofit Life. Thank you for listening to 501c3 BS, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3 BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.